Hey, welcome to Life 2.0 Podcast. I'm John St. Augustine. Glad to have you joining me from anywhere and everywhere around planet Earth. Time to go up the down staircase in the outdoor. Make sense out of the senseless. If at all possible, find the obvious buried in the absurd. Hold on to your friggin' lug nuts. Time for an overall. day to you. I hope you're doing well wherever this little uh, audio episode finds you in the world. I, I get such a big kick out of coming in here on a Saturday morning, even though I know people are listening all different times and days and things like that. But for me, it's a Saturday morning ritual. Uh, up early, the sun's taking a little bit longer to crawl out of the uh, the, the eastern horizon here. Uh, but the coffee is hot and it's a beautiful, cool morning here in Chicago. We got the fan on and the vaunted and highly respected Aurora Media Studio. So we'll see what we can come up with today. Um, I rarely, I mean, rarely ever write down a note and say, oh, I need to talk about this specific thing when I do the, uh, the Life 2.0 podcast. The basis of the show, of course, is to up the experience of being alive. That's really the premise underneath everything that I've ever done. And it comes out of a lot of, you know, uh, experiences in my life where I wasn't supposed to be alive. When I was 19 years old, I was electrocuted. Done. No heart rate. See ya. You're out of here. And I was brought back by, uh, I'll never forget it, Chicago Fire Department, truck number 32. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen out there. If you're still doing your job, I appreciate it. It was good to still stick around for a while. At 19, you think you're bulletproof. And I guess on some level I was. But I, I came back from that and things got kind of interesting. And when I was 27, a couple of weeks after I had gotten married, we were hit by a drunk driver at 75 miles an hour in a Cadillac. I was driving a 1983 Firebird. Not a big car. It took the brunt of it. And it was the second, you're out of here. And then I came back, you know. And so those two experiences, among many others, uh, has this thing in me that is continually looking for the purpose and value of our lives. And conversely, the things that keep us away from the value and purpose of our lives. And sometimes the list of the things that keep us away from the purpose and value of our life is far bigger, it seems, it seems, than just being here, which is an incredible gift. Last week I talked about uh, a little bit about my TED Talk in uh, Ontario back in 2018 with the whole human math thing. And, you know, part of that human math equation is the odds of being born are one in 400 trillion. One in 400 trillion that you showed up and that you're still here. And then we think about what we spend our time on, this, this incredible lottery win that we've all had. If you're listening to the sound of my voice, you're still here. What do you do with those winnings, the lottery of life winnings? That's a matter of choice, I think, not chance. So these shows that I do, no matter which angle or leverage point I take, is to get us back to there, and myself included. You know, I don't live above all this. I'm still on the waterline. There are days I think, what the, what? But something will come along and nudge me, or I'll, I'll remember something, or I'll see something off in the distance that says, you're alive. You know how many people still wish they were here? I think the, the nearest... Uh, configuration of how many people have been born and, and died since like recorded history is in the billions, of course. 
So if you take the odds of being born, which are one in 400 trillion, and you realize there are more people have come and gone through this life thing than, than are on the planet at this point, uh, you know, it's a pretty good deal to be here. And I know everybody's got their difficulties and challenges. Of course, that's the experience of life. I Maybe one day I'll be able to put it all in one succinct, focused piece. Like, I think this is how it really works. But part of that is that maybe the experience of being alive is what being alive is all about. The good, the bad, and the ugly. It's all about an experience, a feeling that we get to have and that's what makes us grow while we're here, if you choose to do that. There are some people like kicking and screaming, don't bring me out. I don't care what's going on over here. I'm not going to participate. And that's okay. Free will has a big uh, part to play in all that. But everything I do somehow ends up being in that direction. Like, wow, look at this. Yesterday, perfect example. And I've mentioned this before. You know, whenever I have the opportunity to go get a haircut, which isn't often, I really don't need one as much as I used to. And as I've said, I don't have hair anymore. I have quills, much like a porcupine. They're just, they're, it's just getting, you know, the shorter I keep it, it's like a Brillo pad at some point. But I enjoy going for the process. Like I can still get a haircut. That's all right. And the barber is in the neighborhood I grew up. Now, of course, it wasn't that when I was a kid, but that doesn't matter to me. What matters is, is when I go over there and I had a bunch of things to do in the city. So you know, I don't go in as much as I used to or want to sometimes, especially to that part of, of Chicago where I grew up. But when I get there, it's like these curtains part. And I get to slide back into a time that was very different and yet eerily the same as now. So I get there and usually I have to wait. There's two, three, four guys with a heck of a lot more hair than I got. And it takes probably 30 minutes for them to each get a haircut. But yesterday, I'm the only one. Now that's, a, that's winning the lottery. In my book, I come pulling up down Keeler Avenue. I make a left-hand turn on Montrose. Right on the corner is Ray Fade. Now, I don't know what country Ray's from, uh, but he's been here about 15 years. He's been cutting my hair, and we rarely talk. Yeah, you know, I'm not in for, you know, to go in and get a sermon from the guy when I haircut. And so I pull up, and he's, he's standing there like he's waiting for me. He's, hey, and I have not been there for probably two months. Uh, during the summertime, just kind of let things go. But anyway, I sit down in the chair and I asked him a question. I said, how, this was really interesting. I said, how many haircuts do you think you've given in your career? And he says to me, how many times have you eaten dinner while you've been alive? I'm like, incalculable. He goes, same. So we have this little conversation back and forth about, you know, the things that we do. And, and, and then finding myself in the space of this guy who was a self-taught barber. He, when he was 10, 11, 12 years old, his dad said, you know, you got to work. There's no free lunch here, which will lead me to something later in this show that I experienced as a reminder to myself. And he started to watch a guy cut hair and he would go there and sweep the floor. And he did it for like three years with no pay. Eventually learned some techniques and this and that. Now he owns his own shop and people line up, men only, it's a men only shop, uh, to, uh, to get their, you know, their follicles trimmed up. And so here is our intersection. When I was working in Chicago, but living in Michigan, I met the guy a couple times. And in the beginning, his haircuts were 10 bucks. I mean, first of all, for a guy like me, that's perfect. 10 bucks? Come on. I'd give him a $5 tip. Then haircuts went to 12 bucks. I still gave him a $5 tip. Then haircut went to 15 bucks. I still gave him a $5 tip. When they hit $20, I don't give him a tip anymore because it's been there the whole time. But being in that area cleanses me of all the 
the stuff that's going on in the 21st century. I drive around past the house that I lived in and I, I look for, you know, the people that are no longer there, the ghosts of my past. And I see the Connor house next door and I think of the endless hours, especially in summertime, hanging out with the Connor kids. And across the street, the Stitches lived and, and time with them and down the block, Al Christensen's place and all the times in the pool. And I'm still in touch with Al to this day. And looking, I pulled over to the side with the playground where I spent endless hours and I could literally feel the grime of the 21st century sliding off me. I'm going to be 65 in December, but for about two hours yesterday, I was about between nine and 14. And you know what that does for, for me particularly? It rejuvenates my life. So for me, yeah, it's a haircut. Yeah, I could probably get away with one around here, but going to the super sporty clip thing with the hot towel does not take me back to the place that was most important in my life. And I need that. And I think we all need that. We should be looking for places and things and, and connections to the best parts of our, ourself. Now, I, I get that not everybody had the same experience I had growing up, but it wasn't all great. But the parts I remember were really great. I mean, difficulty, my mom was an alcoholic. I brought this up, don't, don't mind talking about it. You know, there was a lot of tough times at our house. But the offset of that and the counterbalance that was be able to walk to that park and laugh like a hyena for hours. That's the counterbalance. And how do we not do that in our own lives? Everything is so effing serious now. And, you know, part of the deal is back then the information just only had a few routes. We had four TV channels, five if you count UHF on Friday night, right? So all that was going on in the world back then was only disseminated and, and, and put out to the world in a much smaller way. I am in the firm belief for myself, I hear from friends of mine that totally disagree and that's fine, that the world's not any worse than it is today than it was back then. I just finished this Randy Hunley book. I spent more time in the 60s than I could possibly want to do ever again. And it was a shit show. Four assassinations in five years. JFK, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King Jr., and Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Gone. Try that now. Try that with all the outlets that we have now. It would be... I mean, we all have PTSD at this point anyway because of all this bombardment of this shit. But just think of it. In those five years, those four men gunned down. But that was all in that decade. And then you add Vietnam on that layer. Then you add the civil rights on that layer. And then you add the Democratic National Convention on top of that layer. And you look at how inflation was. and all. And, but we don't usually go back and look and see that stuff. Oh, my God, things are horrible today. So-and-so's doing this. Really? What year would you switch out for? And the only reason I say that is because it's easy to say, well, remember the good old days? Well, all that was going on when I was a kid, but I didn't know any of it because I was a kid and it was still going on. So I think to myself how important it is to have the mindset of when I was a kid. That doesn't mean I'm stupid, obviously, and walk around and ignore things, but I'm also not going to let it consume me. You know, for years, I was a, a personal trainer and I haven't talked about this for a while, but the most prominent tenant of kinesiology, which is the movement of the human body that I, my minor is in, uh, is SAID, Specific Adaptation to Imposed Demands. And that means even at my age, when I go into the gym now, I'm doing the same basic movements that I've always done for 50 years. I mean, I started working out when I was 14 years old when Pumping Iron came out, the book, before the movie. 
And I thought, I, wa I, I want to do this. And my, I had the genes to do it and the drive to do it. My grandfather had made some homemade weights that my mom still had in our basement. And I was down there every night after supper. And I took to it like a fish to water. And my body has responded in kind over time. It obviously doesn't look the same now as it did when I was 20. But the movements are the same. I have not stopped doing the same basic movements that I have for 50 years. And because of that, my body has responded in kind. If I did nothing in those 50 years and sat on the couch and ate Oreos, which I've done at times, especially when the Halloween Oreos come out, they don't taste the same, but I think they do. If I'd have just done that for 50 years, it's a different story. But that's just not on the physical level. It's also on the spiritual level. So all the influences, the things that I've had to adapt to spiritually over the years, electrocution, car accidents, giving up a body part to my daughter, all those pieces, I've had to adapt to those because if you don't adapt, you die. I mean, it's really what happens. It's really not survival of the fittest. It's survival of the most adaptable species. And can you adapt to the changing conditions, some that you've created and some that are created for you? If you can't adapt to those, you get stuck back. You become extinct in some way, shape, or form. So I'm sitting, speaking of the gym, I'm sitting there last week doing some, you know, just some simple stretches before I start working out. And the guy who's got the phone in the gym, you know, the phone guy, who really doesn't work out a lot, but takes pictures of, which I find effing fascinating, that you'd go to a gymnasium. And there was a couple of girls doing it too, and they're dressed like they're working out. And I'm in and out in a half hour. And I'm like, they're not doing really anything except taking pictures of themselves at the gym. Anyway, this guy with the phone who, you know, there's not a no phone rule, there should be, but he's walking around doing whatever. And he always has these you know, like black bottoms and a black top with the sleeves cut off and kind of oiled up and he's walking around and doing his thing. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm wearing old school hat backwards, two sweatshirts, beat up shorts. And he walks over and goes, you a football player? You look like a football player. Do you ever play football? I don't even know who this, I've seen him. But I don't know the guy's name. I said, yeah, I played football a long time ago. Well, I would think so because you look like a football player. I mean, your shoulders and neck, you look like somebody played for the Bears. You play for the Bears? No, I didn't play for the Bears. Well, where'd you play football? I said, well, I played in college. I played semi-pro, played high school, played midget cup football. I've played football. So, yes, you're correct. Boy, you sure look like a football player. I'm like, I think we've established the fact that I look like a football player. That's for sure. So thank you for recognizing that. And he says, I never played football. He said, I was never really good in sports. He said, but I can sure play Madden football. You know the video football? I can play that. I'd have been a great coach in the NFL. Okay, and let me know when Elvis gets here, okay? So he kind of wanders off, and it just got me really thinking about repetition and all the rest that goes into it and this specific adaptation and imposed demands. And even though I am not in the shape I was when I was 20 or 30 or 40 or even 50, I'm in better shape at 64 than I would be if I never did any of that and started at 64, which happens at, you know, when people get into a crisis. You need to work out. Have you ever worked out? No. Now's the time to start. So wherever you're at in that, you can change it pretty quickly. The machine is pretty amazing. Once you start moving it in directions, sometimes that are good for you and sometimes that are, are difficult, but they become easier over time. So there's that piece off to the side. But right after that, I took a drive through the place with the golden arches. And on occasion, and I'm just going to tell you why, uh, I'll have a steak, egg, and cheese bagel with a Coke and two hash browns. That happens maybe three or four times a year. Not something I do consistently. 
specific adaptation to impose demands. So but three or four times a year I do that. It's usually when I really miss my dad. It was my dad's favorite big meal at McDonald's. This guy would go, you know, when he was retired, he had all his time, and he would take his papers from the week. He'd drive to McDonald's. He'd take all his papers out. He'd get a number seven. I think it's a seven or a number nine meal. It's the steak, egg, and cheese, and it's this huge piece of bagel, which I'm not a huge fan of. It's too much bread for me. But anyway, I order this, and I think of him. I miss him. I wish he was here to see his great-grandchildren being born, uh, to, to be part of all the stuff that I've had a chance to do, to spend time with his grandkids, my sister's kids, all that kind of stuff. And I was thinking about him, so I drive through there, and it brings me a little closer to my dad when I, when I have that. So I'm waiting in line, and I can see this kid, I don't know, in his 20s probably, at the end of the, the drive through line where you walk out the door uh, of McDonald's, and he's got his hand out, or like a styrofoam cup, he's asking for money. And now it's about quarter to 10 in the morning, it's a beautiful day, and there's this kid there. And the cars are, you know, driving by, kind of, and nobody's giving him money, and so it's my turn, I get up there, I pay for my food, I, and you know, where you wait at the end there, for, if you got a little larger uh, order, they got to bring it out to you, and this kid's there, and he shakes his cup like I'm supposed to give him something. And I said, are you all right? He said, what? I said, are you okay? Did you, you know, do you have some major financial setback or did your house burn down in a fire or what, what happened? He goes, nothing. I said, nothing happened? I said, so did you give up a kidney or go out of business or, you know, have to live in a motel? I mean, I started running down the list of the experiences I've had all since the, when I was his age, which I would guess to be about 20, 22, 23, 24. And he's looking at me like, what the fuck did I get into? He's no man, I didn't mean that. I said, so what are you doing out here? And he looks at me with like no blank stare. And I'm thinking to myself, this is a kid who's, by seemingly all appearances, is fit to serve. And his one thing to do today is stand out in line in McDonald's hoping someone gives him a little benevolence in the form of coins. And just as I'm, I'm going back and forth, just a little bit, he's really kind of looking to the next car like, I don't want to deal with this guy. This guy's nuts. And the guy comes walking out with my food, and he grabs it and puts it in. And he goes, he's, thank you, sir. And he looks at the guy, and he goes back in. And I said, what do you think the difference is between the guy that just brought me this food, who's getting paid $15 an hour, and you standing out here for an hour and making a buck if you're lucky? What do you think the difference is? He goes, I, I, I don't know. I said, you might want to find out. You might want to find out because if I'd have given him a red cent or even a blue cent, just to be fair, when it comes to politics, I would have been reinforcing the fact that the best, in my opinion, the best place for him was standing at the end of that line asking for scraps. I would reinforce that. Oh, somebody gave me something. That's not unlike the Pavlov's dog response. You ring the bell, the dogs get fed. Ring the bell, the dogs get fed. You ring the bell, the dogs get fed. Ring the bell, the dogs don't get fed, but they salivate anyway like they're going to. So here's this kid, by all accounts, nothing wrong with him. Somebody taught him this. This is his belief system, and he needs to stand there and ask money. He'll do all day, I'm sure, at different locations. But I'm thinking to myself, really? And it's hard for me not to run all this, of course, through my experiences. You know, and I, I was in, in the service at his age, and, and I was working since I started newspapers, and work has brought so much to my life, the discipline of doing things, even this show. I don't see any difference. In the discipline it takes for me to go to the gym, cut the grass, 
deliver newspapers, one of the other 300 jobs I've had in my life, and doing a podcast. It's all about getting it done. It's all about putting the work in. And I know, listen, there's been times I've given huge amounts of money. When I feel moved to do so, if somebody's got their ass kicked and, you know, sure, uh, GoFundMe pages for people who've lost everything, absolutely. Hungry kids, I'm in. 22-year-old kid, no problems, no way. And I look at that in the context of this little show here today about lifting up the life experience. What I said to this kid probably didn't mean anything. It didn't change anything. My guess is he'll still keep doing it. And I didn't say that for him to change. But I had to ask him a better question because if you don't ask better questions in life, you don't get better answers. You just don't. And real quick, as I kind of get ready to wind this thing down, uh, I'm really working to keep these to 30 minutes or so. Um, the whole idea of you are what you eat come to mind. Now, if I had a steak, egg, and cheese bagel, a number seven or a number nine, I will figure it out and I will report back which one it is. It's probably a number nine. If I did it every day, I'd be up shit creek. I'd be on nine medications. I don't do it every day. As I said, three or four times a year. And, but if I did that every day, it would not be good for me because I would be ingesting things that are not good. And that whole thing about you are what you eat is true. So I've really had to watch it, especially the stuff I used to get away with. I can't get away with as much. I'm getting older. I don't move around as much as I used to. So I kind of have to monitor it. So when the Halloween Oreos come out, you know, I only get like six packages this year, not 10. But it also applies to everything that we ingest with information. As I said before, there was four outlets. There was a newspaper. There was no cell phone where everything bad happening in the world comes to your hip. What's the point of that? And that's the same thing. That becomes Pavlovian. You know, I had a, a Blackberry on my hip when I worked at Harpo. And I, I know I've recounted this story at one time where everybody's email I came through my Blackberry. Every 30 seconds, it's bzz, 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 until I learned how to divert stuff that wasn't meant for me that I could do nothing about. And when I see the, the over... Uh, proliferation of information and the devices that we have that deliver this to us and the outlets which are you can't even count them anymore it's not good for us in my opinion to totally bombard people over and over again with shit they can't do anything about listen i i'm not i'm not going to sit on any jury that trump's going to be involved in i'm not sorry no one's going to call me so for me not to be to, to emotionally get hijacked or something like that, or a million other news items. You know, I was going to try and make the point today, go down my Yahoo list of what's posted that I should look at, and none of it is A, none of my business, and B, none of my business. So instead, I'd rather just look out in the yard and watch the birds, like I did when I was 14. Can you imagine if the 1960s we had the technology we have today? I don't think we'd have made it as a species. We shred each other over every single little thing. Imagine Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook during Vietnam years. Imagine that. And the assassinations. Imagine that. I mean, imagine, just, get, get a, just, 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 just stay with that for a second. And now, you know, what the Kardashians are doing, we have to have discussion over. What? Not me. Not me. So the last piece of this is something that came to me in my mind. I didn't invent this, I'm sure. But the phrase, be like water, showed up about a week ago. 
in all that's going on, John, just be like water. Don't be like rock stuck there, taking the hits all the time. Be like water and move around these things. Just let it, let it ebb and flow. Let it come and go. And there's been two pieces of uh, my life that I've had to apply that to in the last week. We're still having some challenge with this Randy Hunley book, even though the printer has it and, and all the things that go along with it. We had a last-minute change, and I was sweating bullets about a week ago thinking, this can't happen. I mean, I've been working on this effing year. This is Randy Hunley, one of the most revered Cubs in the history of the, of, of the club for sure, and in baseball, and it needs to be right. And so there was a small window of time to make a change, and I'm, you know, I had to work it out. This ca- this cannot happen. And then the thought came: just let it go. Be like water. It'll take care of itself in one way, shape, or form. It'll be all right. You can't control everything. And that's where that anxiety comes, is trying to control the uncontrollable. I watch people who are friends of mine and acquaintances and people fighting and arguing over stuff they have zero control over. To me, that's like this close to being insane, to be nuts, to be off the charts. And it resolved itself. Be like water. Let this stuff go. Go around things and let them ebb and flow and let it come back and forth. And look, that doesn't mean you're a doormat and get walked on. But at least it means to me that you have an option that may not seem to be one before you have that thought, to be like water, to let it come and go. Rise and fall. Rise and fall in all things. And it's that whole concept of not pushing the river because you just end up drowning anyway. It's better to go with the flow of things, even though it may look ridiculous and crazy and you don't understand what's going on. And then one day when you, when the river of life deposits you where you're supposed to be, you go, holy shit, this was great. And you could have never planned it any better than it turned out. And so I'm reminding myself before this huge event uh, with Hundley and his book launch that I'm sure the next week or so, because everybody's like, just relax, don't stress out, it'll all be fine. I get to apply Be Like Water in my own life. And I'm reminding you of the same. Just for today, just when stuff shows up, be like water. Not good or bad. You don't have to take a stand, especially if it doesn't affect you personally. Unless it's in your hip pocket, be like water and see what happens. Great reminder from my friend John Denver. It's one of my favorite songs of his. I've been thinking about it all week, this whole concept of being like water and surrendering things uh, that you have no control over. I first heard this song in 1974, on the evening with John Denver album. It's become a prayer to me and a mantra and a reminder. And I want to leave you with it. And until next time, be well, safe travels, keep the faith. I'll stand alone on some Just be here today
Surrender 